Hi there, this is Dan Jones, and this is my attempt at a podcast. I became interested in doing a kind of podcast uh, partly because I spend way too much time listening to them. Uh, I've listened to hundreds of hours of podcasts since, uh, well, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, and it's just become something that I've done to pass the time while I'm washing dishes or going for a walk or whatever. And uh, so I'm an oceanographer and a researcher, and uh, what that means is I'm lucky enough to be able to work with a lot of really interesting people. Uh, I work with them, I travel with them sometimes, I go to conferences, and uh, I get to have these great conversations with them. And uh, I started to feel a bit selfish, like, you know, I'm keeping these all for myself. Uh, maybe uh, I should share these. Maybe I should share some of these conversations and ideas uh, with whoever might want to listen to them. So over the years, I started talking about doing this podcast idea, um, and I seemed to get some kind of positive feedback from it. The idea just wouldn't go away, basically. So I thought, okay, I guess I should go for it. The idea refused to disappear as many times as I tried to banish it from my mind. So uh, it's worth a shot. It's a, you know, it's a, a good thing to to try to do. So this is a, uh, I'd kind of consider this a test episode. This episode is with David Monday. He's an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, England. He's, uh, Dave Monday is a modeler, so he constructs numerical models of the ocean and uh, tries to learn things about the behavior of the ocean, what it may have been like in the past, what it might be like in the future, uh, based on his models. Um, he's a, a really nice guy and a really nice individual to, to talk to. We've known each other for many years. We met in uh, Spokane, Washington, in, uh, I guess, it, uh, several years ago. I forget when, when that was exactly off the top of my head. I'd have to look it up. We uh, spent a good hour, hour and a half talking, and we talked uh, about his background, about how he ended up as an oceanographer. Uh, we talked a little bit about some ideas like uh, when you're traveling as a scientist, uh, you know, you have to balance a lot of things when you're traveling. I'll save that for the, the interview. We get into it a little bit. We don't talk that much about the science so in this episode, if you're expecting a lot of science content, uh, it's not there. We talk a little bit about science, but this is mostly about uh, Dave and Dave's life and a few ideas about becoming a scientist. Um, we kind of thought about this, we, we thought about our potential audience as, uh, well, maybe students is uh, one potential uh, audience type, if you will. Um, I'm thinking that there will be other people who might be interested in this, but uh, students who are just starting out might be interested in some of these things that we're talking about today. So, uh, yeah, I had a good good chat with Dave. We just recorded it um, on uh, my laptop here, and uh, really, I should say, going into it, the, the audio quality is okay. It's a little bit quiet because uh, for this interview, I only had one microphone. So we kind of huddled around that one microphone. So if it sounds a bit distant at times, that's why. Uh, I'm also, I should preface this by saying I'm definitely not a natural interviewer. This is a skill set that I'm going to have to build up over time. And I feel like as I do more of these, I'll probably get better at it. Um, you know, that's a, a thing that just takes practice, right? Uh, talking with people in this kind of setting. But uh, without, without uh, lingering any further, let's just go ahead and get to it. 
um, as quickly as we can. So this is, uh, here we go, test episode with Dave Monday. Let me see if there's anything else I should say. I don't, I don't think so. I think that's, that's about it. Um, okay. Yep. Enjoy this talk with, uh, David Monday. I remember um, when I took, oh, you like it? The yeah. little ball microphone? Yeah, Steph was nice enough to get this for me, including the professional looking, you know, windscreen uh, to go out of the front. And that's, you know, if you make any sounds, that screen should absorb it. That's the idea anyway. Thank you. It looks very space age with a tiny little satellite. Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, they're about that size. I'm sure they'll miniaturize them down. So you accidentally swallowed them one day. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I just swallowed the satellite. Oh dear. <laughs> if, we'll probably have to sit a little bit close to it. So okay. I just have the one. Um, so, yeah, if that's all right. Is that, yeah. So we got bumped out of the studio at the last minute, which is oh. okay. That's fine. I mean, it is <clears throat> nice and soundproof there, but the chairs aren't very comfortable. So I've got better chairs in here. <laughs> so I think in terms of chairs, we'll be more okay. comfortable <laughs> trying it out. Um, is that something yeah. that I think they would book? Or? Yeah, basically, it um, was free as of yesterday, but I think sometimes they have to react quite quickly to things. Mm-hmm. You know, news stories coming out, or uh, you know, the communications team has to like deal with the story quickly or provide a response to, to a journalistic entity quickly. The cycles are so fast. Like, um, Have you ever gotten, occasionally, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally I get an email from a journalist asking for a comment on something, and they'll say like, "Can you reply back in, you know, by mid morning? Can you can you get back to me in thirty minutes?" Basically, no. it's like, <laughs> probably not. No, in, sorry. in thirty minutes, I've just decided to, what question you're asking me. It'll take me a good hour to come up with a proper answer. Yeah, that's right. And the answer will be maybe. Yeah, the answer will be, uh, I'm not sure. Probably. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. That's right. I don't know what has made me crazy enough to try this, but I think... Maybe the British winter. Maybe, yeah. All that darkness. But listening to way too many hours of podcasts has probably just seeped into my brain. And now this is how I think humans are supposed to talk, I guess. (laughs) I don't know how to interact with them normally. Now I'm like, I I think you're supposed to sit down in front of a microphone and record your conversation. (laughs) Or 144 characters in a Twitter post at a time, right? Those are your only options. Either a tweet or, you know, a three-hour-long podcast conversation. Why you have is no it other options. a um, Well, Pete Davis informed me. I think he said it's short for iPod Broadcast, okay. which um, I'm tempted to only call it iPod Broadcast from now on. <laughs> Welcome to the iPod broadcast. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. What? Yeah. So that what? <laughs> yeah, you what? hear the question mark? You yeah. hear the question <laughs> There was a comedian who did that, Victor Borga. A couple decades ago, he, did, he had a whole bit, he had a routine about punctuation having sound effects associated with them. What? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I haven't seen it in decades, but I remember it from when I was a, a kid. Uh-huh. 
I was one of those obnoxious kids who I would hear something funny or see something funny on something like that, and then I would go around repeating it for weeks afterwards, just just annoying everybody. My seventh grade teacher finally had the. Um, he finally just came out, and he didn't mind telling me. He's like, "Could you stop that, please? That's annoying." <laughs> <laughs> and I felt kind of bad at, at the moment, but I also appreciated the feedback, because when nobody tells you anything, how can you know? Am I being annoying? Am I being entertaining? Yeah. Is this good? Is this bad? I have no idea. Like there's a bit in Despicable Me. It's Despicable Me, and it's uh, he's really telling the kids what to do, and the little one who wants to find a door starts going, "Is this annoying?" The answer is yes. <laughs> That's useful feedback. <laughs> that was like another time in seventh grade, which I guess was also important for me. I was wearing shorts with my socks pulled way, way up high. And um, one of my classmates yelled out at me like, you know, hey, pull your socks down. That looks dumb. And I didn't feel upset, actually. I was like, thank you. Nobody tells me this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody gives me feedback. When you're that age, you also... Um... You think that whatever your family does is normal and it's the way everyone does it. I had a friend who thought that um, when you got married, you have to change your birthday to be on the same day as the person you married. <laughs> that just so happened to be the case with his mum and dad that they were born on the same day. Alex has a little thing like that where um, Steph is left-handed and I'm right-handed. And so for a while he thought, oh, well, I guess all, all girls are left-handed and all boys are right-handed. Well, which he deduced from this small yeah, sample based size. Based on the available evidence of his yeah. mum and dad. That's right. No, he, I mean, that he, that's a conclusion that's based on the evidence that was available yeah. to him at the moment. So that's actually reasonable. And that's actually how you make decisions with you know, data and with scientific information, is you say, well, what do we know now? What can we say right now? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess he, he could do some uncertainty analysis and, and stuff, but... That's how yeah, you do it. The approximately three and a half billion women in the world are sampled one. <laughs> yeah. What's the chances that that? It's not his fault. That's his job. His job is to come up with hypotheses and then test them, right? Well, he, for all he knew, right, everyone, the majority of people could be left-handed, and you were the weirdo. Yeah. Not that I'm saying Steph's weird, but my mum's a South Four as well. Oh She's yeah. You might have to sit uncomfortably close, maybe. Not like to get picked up. Yeah, like maybe. That. Yeah, that that might be good actually. Okay, we'll try that. It's, it's a little, maybe it's a little weird, but we'll... Oh, we'll get used to it. We'll, it'll be fine. Um, Is it recording yeah. at the moment? Yeah, it's going. Oh, okay. So you just start. <laughs> so that's one of the, the tricks of this, is you like you just start before the person shows up. Okay. And that way you have the whole conversation, and there's never that awkward, like, now we're starting. Because okay. if you Well, do I that, am a proper scientist. I just like, I don't always go on about left and right-handed people. <laughs> Of course you are. No, I do. I do a little. I'm going to do a little introduction at the, which is just me talking about the person that I'm about to interview. Uh -huh. And there's a there's a more proper introduction there. You don't have to feel like you don't have to defend yourself. <laughs> don't don't feel defensive right off the bat. Um, you know you are honestly. You're allowed I'm to smart relax. too. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Are you a, are you a smart, stable genius? <laughs> uh, I'm deaf. Well, I. I think on the first one, maybe not the other two. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being a genius. That would be pretty nice, actually. <laughs> so remind me, where did you, uh, where did you grow up? You went at the south, south of England, south, right? coast. south, south coast. Yeah. yeah, near Southampton. So a little place called Fairham between Southampton and Portsmouth. 
Yes, I didn't mean to make you self-conscious about the microphone. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have have said anything. I suddenly noticed a little red dot and (laughs) thought, I bet that means it's on. It is, yeah, Yeah. it's on. Yeah, you just go. Um, That way you get the whole thing. You get the conversation. And yeah, because people clam right up if you go like, we have started. Yeah, say something smart now. Yeah, that's right. Ask a comedian to tell a joke and watch their face fall. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I guess... I mean, I don't know if any comedians, but I would guess their response would be, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's not a switch I turn on. A, a lot of comedians, I mean, they spend a ton of time like writing and thinking and, you know, revising. And uh-huh. so the, the things they deliver on stage, I mean, some of them are improvised, but a lot of these but, things have been said a thousand times to a thousand different audiences and they've whittled away the I mean, bits that don't work. And, and in the case of people like Jimmy Carr, they've worked out the fewest number of words you can tell a joke with. Which yeah. I think he got it down to three. <laughs> I can't remember the joke, which is embarrassing because it's only three words. But yeah. It can take a long time to do that kind of work. You're, you're being creative and you're crafting something yeah. and you're cutting away the bits you don't need, which, um, I mean, that's kind of, there are bits of that in science too. You know, if you're putting a presentation together or putting a paper together, you've got to mm-hmm. do that same kind of work, um, that same kind of work of what, what are the interesting bits I leave in here and what are the bits that I can put to the, to the wayside. Yeah. And hope no one else asks ever to see again. Yeah, <laughs> don't ask me about that. <laughs> That's the embarrassing little bit that I don't want to tell you. On. Yes. Yeah, it's um, it's it can be as simple as swapping the order of two slides. I had that one day. I couldn't work out how to present some work. Um, I was at a conference, first time I talked out loud about it, and I couldn't work out how to smoothly mm. get from one bit to another. And then I woke up the morning of the talk and realised what I needed to do was swap two slides, and nice. suddenly it it worked. Um. <laughs> and I don't know where that inspiration came from. Well, that's, that's, the, uh, that's one idea that is floating around about creativity is the thing you do is you like think really hard about a problem and then you forget about it for a while. And then your subconscious keeps working on it in the background. Uh-huh. And, it comes, and it delivers the solution to you. Right? It, and it doesn't feel like you came up with it. It doesn't feel like you thought of that. It just feels like you woke up and your brain delivered to <laughs> Some you. Some universal truth was broadcast to you that yeah. you could go and implement. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Have this. Maybe that's a type of genius. That yeah. would be quite nice. My old math advisor said he comes up with stuff in his dreams regularly. Like he'll wake up and he will have dreamed about, oh, I need, it needs to be X divided by Y, not... <laughs> 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 I, I did have that once. I woke up in the middle of the night with an explanation for why the Coriolis acceleration is twice the rotation rate of the Earth, and then promptly could never remember it. Again. Um, I promise, I'm smart. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it turns out that it's really just because it's a coordinate transformation that you do twice, and you end up with with a two in front of it as a result. But uh, <laughs> um, oh man, it would be nice if I could remember that. So, what was that like on the south coast? Of England, like what did, did you go to the sea a lot, or was um, that part of your? Yeah, I my my parents' house they still live there now is about a ten minute walk from the seafront. Nice. Um, so in Portchester, which is like the subdivision of Fareham, which is very near to Portsmouth, uh, there's a castle and a big park. So we used to go down there and walk the dogs quite a lot. And so the castle was part of your your life. Like yeah, a regular I, part I of grew your up life. thinking that every town in Britain had a crematorium nearby. And a castle yeah. from the Roman era, because that's where I grew up. Yeah, um, and I guess a, a fair number of them do. Yeah, it, it turns out that crematoria are probably less common than castles. Are they? Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, I've, I don't I've, have a good sense of the geographic distribution of, well, of it, those. It, it turns out you don't need, need to cremate people as frequently as you think. So not every village of or, or small town of about 12,000 people needs a place never, to burn remains. I've literally never thought about that. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, when it, it, I grew up just down the road from it, so yeah. I thought about it a bit. Maybe I was a morbid child. Um, uh, well, no, it's right in your face. Right? It's right there. It's yeah. like right there. It's in front of you. Uh, so, so you got to go walk you know, by the beach a lot. Yeah, not a very nice beach. Um, the it's very stony because of where it is on the south coast. Um, the dogs loved crashing around in the waves, but um, there's a particular odor of the mud. I don't know what it is, but it it's unpleasant. And once you've smelt it at low tide, you never ever forget it. Is it like a bacteria or something that's in the in the mud? We need to go ask a biologist. I, Yes, it probably is something decomposing in Down there. the hallway. Um, you know what? I mean, my the next door office. There's a biologist in there. Maybe we should ask him. What's this thing? Like <laughs> I've bottled it. You now, probably know. Well, it, it's it is so strongly remember, memorable, rather, um, that when we were on the the ship, one of the the crew there, uh, Wave, he trained in that part. Oh, um, right. He remembered the smell something like twenty or thirty years later. Because they were made to run through the mud yeah. when they did things badly. Wave, yeah, Wave Crooks, an ex-military guy, right, who yeah, was on the ship. Yeah, and, and yeah. being near Portsmouth, there's Navy stuff all over the place. So they do their um, dive training and uh, fire crew training, just literally in, practically in fortress stuff. Yeah. Just not quite in fortress. There. And then there's the, the dockyard over the other side that you can see from the castle when you're walking around. And, uh, and your dad was... In the military in some capacity, right? Yeah, he was in the Navy. Uh, He was, um, well, I think the the nickname was Crusher. He was in the um, regulatory branch, so basically he was a a policeman. Yeah. Um, Got to do various things, like arrest folk when they were late back on board and... Uh, oh, arrested? Yeah, I mean, how that... late do you have to be to get arrested? Well, the, if you're getting back on a military ship, you're surely <laughs> if your surely ends at midnight and you're back one one minute late and it's the wrong person signing you back in, then mm. you're in trouble. You have effectively nearly deserted, <laughs> or like I mean, that. That's the the worst case is someone doesn't come back at all. Yeah. Um, and he's been researching our family tree and has discovered that uh, going down his branch, there was I can't remember how many times great grandfather um, who. Basically, his punishment for going AWOL got sent out to China. as He was a signalman, and he got sent out there. How long did he have to stay there, do you know? Or? It was a couple of years. He was the signalman, I think, or radio operator for um, an admiral or some high-ranking officer. And uh, it, it seemed to be, uh, we'll send him to China, he doesn't speak the language, he can't escape. Um, <laughs> so you can see the, the sea has been in my family for quite a long time. It's going back yeah. a couple of generations well, on yeah. both sides. And I was wondering about that, and I wasn't trying to make too obvious of a comparison, but one does wonder, like, you know, the the stuff you grow up, grow up around and the stories you grow up around and kind of what influence that has in steering a person. And, I mean, nobody has, like, a clean answer to that, and I'm not looking for, you know, a clean uh-huh. answer, but it's just interesting to think about and talk about. So I think that, that makes me think about, um, so what did kind of, you know, pull you towards oceanography? When did you kind of start noticing that, like, oh, that might be a um, good thing to do? Well, I was always fascinated by water moving and watching the waves, the waves being the thing that most oceanographers immediately ignore. You know, the most obvious thing that when someone goes to sea, they see is waves. Yeah. You don't worry about those. <laughs> um, and to be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
Um, at some point whilst I was, I know it's when I was at school because I talked to the careers advisor about it and was given some very bad careers advice. What was the bad advice? Um, <laughs> well, at that point I knew I wanted to do oceanography and what I, I think it's fair to say is that careers advisors in school have to cover an incredible breadth yeah. of subject matter and they can't know about everything. So now I know oceanography covers basically every type of science that happens in the sea and I was told to do chemistry. Just chemistry, as if yeah. that was the only type of oceanography you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I ignored that. Um, so I, at some point I'd heard about it on the radio. Growing up near Southampton, the Oceanography Centre then was fairly new. The national, as it was then, Southampton Oceanography Centre. Now it's the National Oceanography Centre at Southampton. Um, and so there was quite a big fanfare when that was open because it had been a huge building project just down the road in Southampton. And I heard about, on the radio, um, what oceanography was, and it sounded interesting. Mm. And at that point, I knew I wanted to continue on to do some science, so I thought, well, let's do that. And it turns out that at that point, I think my options were Southampton, Plymouth, or Bangor hmm. to do an oceanography yeah. degree. Um, and Bangor then, certainly, it was mostly biological side. Um, and because I didn't know what, I went, what side of it I wanted to do, was it physical, chemical, biological, hmm. the rest of it, I went to Southampton where I could do all of them. So it was, you said it on the radio, you heard yeah. about oceanography? Just driving around, well, oh. being a passenger in a car at some point. So. Yeah, so were they like interviewing scientists or what were they? How yeah, was the, I, uh, my vague memory is that they were talking to someone there, possibly to do with the opening of the Oceanography Centre or something that had happened there, um, and talking to them about what they did and what the science was. Oh, right. um, and basically it sounded very interesting, so I thought, I'll try that. So it worked, their outreach worked. It yeah. Got, it got to you. <laughs> And you're like, all right, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, and um, the year was about 150 students at Southampton. At wow, it was 150, enormous. all undergraduate? Yeah, was it? yeah. At, at that point, most people were doing a three-year course at Southampton. Now I think the number, certainly the number that do the four-year master's programme has increased. I don't know if they all do now. Um, because I haven't asked anyone. So, so how, how old were you? You said you kind of, when you knew you wanted to do it, how old when did um, that kind of start to crystallise? Well, if, if that was when I was at school, uh, I would have been 15 or 16. Wow. Um, That's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I obviously grew up in a very different system, but um, in the U.S. system, the assumption is almost, well, you probably won't figure out what you want to do until you're in your mid-20s or so, and even then, we've got, we need to give you some flexibility. <laughs> well, I am making myself sound more prepared than I was. So th- that was kind of this vague idea that that sounded like an interesting subject to pursue. Yeah. Um, at that point, um, without trying to sound like I'm blaming all of the adults around me for, for giving me bad advice, <laughs> um, I hadn't considered research as a career. Mm. I mean, to be honest, what most people were telling me is I should be a doctor, as in a medical doctor, yeah. um, because obviously I had the, the skills for the science side. Um, and it took me a long time to decide that, you know what, I really didn't want to be that. Mm. Um, and frankly, I'm glad I didn't. I think it would not have been a healthy thing for me to do mm. because I would obsess over people's ill health and try to fix them. Oh, right. Um, and that wouldn't, wouldn't work very well for me. I think you've got the right demeanour for it, but if, if it internally doesn't agree with you, then yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But I could see it in terms of your, like, you know, you do... I could see you, le- you know, learning that skill set and I could see you being very friendly and approachable uh, in, in that way. But, um, no, I'm not saying... It, it, it makes sense. Everything yeah, makes it's, sense. it's yeah. that thing of... I'm an oceanographer. When I make a mistake, worst thing that happens is I have to rerun a numerical model. Yeah. 
<laughs> or um, I have to correct something in a paper or something like that. If you're a doctor and you make a mistake, someone could die. Yeah. Uh, that, those yeah. consequences are far too big for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm glad I didn't go down that path. And honestly, at no point did I make a conscious decision that I was going to be a scientist. Um, I went to university. I got to the end of my undergraduate degree or towards the end of it and started thinking, oh dear, I need a job. Yeah. Um, so I better get a suit because I'm going to need to be interviewed. <laughs> um, I probably looked like I was wearing my father's suit at that point. Um, and the upshot of it was, I thought, well, I like science. I want to keep doing science. So I need a job in science. So I went and got new scientists because that's what you do, right? It's in the job section. At that point... What is it? New scientists? New scientists. So yeah. Is it a magazine? Um, yeah, I think it's the weekly, actually. I haven't read it for a long time, hmm. uh, but it's always very interesting because it covers everything. Um, and there's some, some really interesting articles in it. Like I read one about a, a lady who was a linguist and she had two big grey parrots and had taught these parrots to have a vocabulary of like 300 words. It was amazing. And so she could have conversations with them. Um, and uh, there's always been a job section in it. So at this point, the internet existed, but it was not the mature yeah. information uh, broker, I suppose, yeah, that it right. was now. Yeah, um, the, the internet used to be, compared to now, it used to feel fairly empty. You know, it used to feel pretty yeah, bare bones, it, like it was a skeleton a, there. It was a real skill to choose the right number of words in Google or Yahoo was the more common search engine, because we're going back. Ask Jeeves. Yeah, oh, good grief, yeah, Ask Jeeves, because this is 16 years ago. No, 17 years ago. Um, it's amazing how much broader the internet has become. Yeah. Um, so websites were bare bones or frames. Oh, frames, frames. are horrible. I'm glad those are dead. <laughs> they are, they deserve to be. I still come across them sometimes now. It's like, what are people thinking? Um, so I looked in there. I said that, but I have to admit, I did have a website in the late 90s with frames on it. So well, they were fashionable, like... <laughs> weren't they? The, the main problem was you got stuck in somebody else's frames when you navigated to somewhere else. Yeah. And then, didn't know what to do. They've got you forever. Like yeah, you're mine now. So <laughs> your screen now. becomes smaller and smaller as more frames <laughs> open up within other yeah. frames. But I thought you said something important a second ago when you were like, at no point did I think I was going to be a scientist. It was never yeah. something you said, I'm now going for this. It's more like you had a set of interests and a set of skills and you saw an opportunity and you pursued that opportunity and started going in a direction. And that's kind of all anybody can do, right? Is you just... I think, I mean, there's there's different schools of thought on this. Uh, you know, one school of thought is, no, you should pick you know, what you want to do and then go all in and go for it. And I understand that, but it's also pretty high stakes because what if you have to change that? How much, yeah. how much importance are you going to put on that plan in your mind of this must happen? You know, if you hold on to that plan so tightly that uh, it, it could start to become a problem for you if you have to deviate from that, that plan. So to me, it makes more sense internally, just in terms of how I'm made up, is to have a set of interests and have a set of things you like to do and have a skill set and to just see what opportunities are there, to see what, um, what kind of jobs you can get. I, I much prefer that as the alternative. I was incredibly naive and never <laughs> thought beyond what I was doing at the time. I um, never realised what a bad idea this was. <laughs> yeah, it's just... I mean, I, the young, young people I talk to now... Um, we're getting to the time of the year where in, in Britain where we're going to have uh, people thinking of starting their PhD next year and they're going to be interviewing for the, for the projects. So now's the time of year when you tend to talk to them a bit more. And they seem so much more focused than I ever was. Um, mm. 
So they're, they're thinking of doing PhDs at younger age. I didn't even know what a PhD was. Uh, I, I was only ever thinking of the next thing. So you know, I needed a job. I looked at a new scientist. It was all biology or medical doctors, people doing cancer research. It's like, well, one, I haven't got the training. Two, that's not my subject. I've already decided not medicine. Um, and then I saw a tiny little advert for a master's degree at the University of Reading in their meteorology department. And I read it and thought, well, that sounds interesting. Um, and before I knew it, there was funding available, even better, uh, I was there. Um, so that was just kind of, a, I can't, I didn't do a comprehensive job search, but I had discovered that none of the jobs that were in New Scientist did I want. I wanted to do that degree. So I went and did that. Um, and that was actually the interview for that master's degree was the first time anyone had said to me, why aren't you doing a PhD or have you thought of a PhD? What's a PhD? Yeah. I, oh, I did very well. I'd heard of a PhD, yeah. but I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was three years. Mm. Um, so I bluffed. <laughs> I said, um, Stephen Boucher, if you're listening, it wasn't a total lie. Um, uh, he was the, it was Stephen Boucher and David Grimes that interviewed me for Interviews yeah. me for that. They're not listening. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, I'm sure they're not. Um, in fact, I know David Grunman because sadly he passed away a few years ago. Oh. Um, he was a great lecturer. I'll just get that in as well. Um, and uh, I said, well, you know, I've just come out of three three years. It was quite tough, um, hard work to, to to achieve what you want. And I don't know if I want to commit to another three. Years. <laughs> I, I knew something about PhD. I didn't know what PhD stood for, um, it, and I still don't know something about. Um, but I did, uh, you know, I bluffed my way through it, and uh, basically, what happened was I hadn't, because I hadn't considered it. Well, um, I know how long that is. <laughs> three years, can I do it? Um, I hadn't considered it, but at least it made me think. Well, maybe I can do it. Maybe that I, I had no idea, and uh, really, it was that year in Reading that um, that was David Marshall, um, a very prominent oceanographer, was my tutor for that course. Um, and he really encouraged me to pursue it as well. Okay. Am I drumming on the table and sugaring things? A little. I thought maybe I'll move it just in case we're... I told myself I wasn't going to fidget. Well, I think it's okay now. I just... Um, I'd probably... I'll have it up here and that way it won't be as affected by the drumming and stuff. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. So this was this was Reading. This was Reading, yeah. yeah. And he, he was someone else that encouraged me to pursue the PhD um, yeah. and that's what I ended up doing and then at some point a few years after that I woke up and realized I had a career yeah. um, but I was a postdoc and doing science and I had been doing it for a number of years. <laughs> when um, did this happen? Yeah you just kind of slid into it. I, I don't know I guess sometime around my fifth year as a postdoc I suddenly thought hang on I've got a career and I want to keep doing this Yeah. and how do I keep doing this? Yeah um, Yeah. I guess in that process, I mean, we're, we're making it sound a bit like there was, that was fairly solid, but I think one of the things that a lot of people contend with as they're trying to carve out a career path is just dealing with that uncertainty, just kind of living with that, like, I mean, we, it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, that you've got this idea for a career path, and if you hold on to it too tightly, then be very difficult to deal with the uncertainty that comes with like, mm -hmm. well, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work out. So, did you ever have a feeling of like, oh well, I wonder what other pathways, what other directions this might, this might go, or are you more mentally healthy than I am and just able to 
roll with the punches. I'm going there. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I suppose um, I've been at Bass now for just over three years. Um, and at some point I had to make a decision. So um, I was in, in Reading for master's degree, PhD, postdoc, and then the group moved. I was still working with David Marshall and he got a job in Oxford. Um, and so the whole group moved to Oxford. And then I was there for nearly seven years as well, just over seven years. And I loved working at Oxford. Um, I loved the environment. We were in a physics department. So you got exposed to all these weird, wonderful things. Um, I'm, I'm still slightly disappointed that um, uh, condensed matter physics basically means solids. Because it sounds <laughs> awesome. It sounds like that should be something. And I'm sure it is great if you're in the area, in, in the subject. Um, but it was a bit of a disappointment. Um, what was working with um, with your advisor like? Terrifically good fun. We got on really well, well we still do. Um, I was, I think, I, I assumed everyone had a great relationship with their PhD supervisor and wanted to continue working with them. Um, I was wrong and I realise now that's not guaranteed, but... Yeah, I think we both got lucky. Yeah, because my, my advisor was also really nice to work with and really friendly and really collaborative, but yeah, you hear some horror stories. You do, and I'll, I think I'll, I'll let other folks, you know, share those <laughs> on here if they want. I think sometimes <laughs> it's personalities can clash. Um, a, a good friend of mine, actually, who's an archaeologist by training, she stopped doing her PhD because uh, it was the first time her advisor had had a student, and it just wasn't working. Mm. Um, which at the time for her was a great disappointment. Um, yeah. Uh, Somebody has to be the first student, though. There's no way around. It must be hard for the advisors as well, to, to, yeah. because they, well, they haven't done this before, and it's a, it's a huge responsibility too, being an advisor, right? Because yeah. this person has decided to change, possibly everything about their lives. You know, they may have moved to your town. Well, in your case, you moved you know. thousands of miles, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but that was just, um, yeah. So a few years ago, I did move to the UK, but. I was just doing well, what, what you described. First. Yeah, that's right. But I was just doing what you were talking about, where I was literally, I had a general direction I was hoping to go, but I was literally just seeing what opportunities were in front of me mm -hmm. in those moments, right? Like what jobs are there and what possibilities are there. So I was just kind of, a friend of mine describes it as like a, like a snake carving out a path, you know, being kind of sneaky, like finding little holes to go down and find for a shortcut somewhere yeah something maybe um maybe not a shortcut but um some, uh, a, a smooth good, a good path route, a smooth yeah uh, yeah you don't always want to get caught in the tumbleweed right it's um maybe not although i guess the tumbleweed bits if you survive those bits they can make you tougher which is potentially a good thing yeah i i had a difficult first postdoc um and it did teach me that sometimes you have to just stop persevering. Um, sometimes you have to just stop persevering. Yeah, it's, you, you, you can put too much time and energy on one thing that is never going to work. And eventually you have to go, you know what, that just isn't going to work. And I've got to do something else. That's a great question. That's a great uh, question, right? Is when, because we kind of romanticize this idea of just keep working, just keep going, just keep attacking this. Mm -hmm. And that attitude can get you it can get you a lot of things, can't it? And it can get you through difficulties. But there is, it's interesting to think about on some practical level, you might have to say, 
you know what, this isn't going to work. I'm going to need to make a, a change here. And I'm not, there's no general answer to when that's the case, but I think it's important to maybe soften that um, romantic myth a little bit and yeah. to say it is okay, you know, especially if it is a feeling you've had for many, many months or years, to say, like, this is fundamentally not working out and I need to change something. That's, yeah, that's fine. It's, uh... it's like being in a bad relationship, right? If you, <laughs> it might take a while for you to realize, but uh, actually this is not good for me. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think um, you have to be willing to get stuck to do science because I'd love it if it was like uh, an episode of Stargate when in 43 minutes, uh, Samantha Carter, can, who is meant to be a genius physicist, can somehow uh, learn an entirely new field um, solve the problem and have it all wrapped up neatly for the theme to play at the end. But the, the fact of it is is that sometimes you get stuck for months. Um, and sometimes, uh, as a student, you've got one research project and that's what you're focused on. But as soon as you're no longer a student, you start to get multiple projects starting, spinning up with new people. Um, and that's a good thing because it means if you're stuck on one thing, you just go, you know what, I'm going to park that and not think about it for six months. And then the little bright bit at the back of your brain like you were saying earlier, hopefully solves your problem for you. Um, for other things, sometimes it's just a case of it's never going to work. Yeah. Um, and, and identifying that is, is going to depend on the problem. That just comes with experience. There's no, there's no substitute for just experiencing it yeah. and finding um, out what your own personal tolerance is. And, and it can go from spending an afternoon trying to integrate something that when you eventually go and look at a textbook, it reminds you you can't integrate because it's a transcendental function. Um, to spending multiple years on, on a, something where the method just is not going to be mature enough at that yeah. point to do what you need it to do. To me, this is why it's kind to give people the flexibility to change careers if they want, to change paths if they want, to change majors, to make that easy. Because, like we were saying, figuring out whether something is right for you, there's no substitute for just doing it. You just yeah. try it. I mean, you know, I don't know if, if this is going to work. We're just trying it. <laughs> This podcast thing, we're just going to see well, that's, that's, if it works. That's the best way to try, find out, right? Yeah. It's like some people, they, they might like science, they might enjoy their undergraduate degree, but in all honesty, the little taste of research they might get in that could be as short as an eight-week research project in their final yeah. year. And they might get really lucky, and it might go really well, and yeah. they might get the wrong idea. <laughs> they might get a great um, supervisor <laughs> for it that who might have come up with a project that they know is absolutely going to work. Yeah. They know it fits in eight weeks. Great. Mm -hmm. And the student comes along, they do it, they have a great time, um, they meet the rest of the research group, and the whole experience is very positive. They might think, wow, well, maybe I will do that PhD, and then they'll discover sometime in their first year that not all research projects are like that. Yeah. Because we don't start a PhD when we know the answer, that's not the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, by their nature, they've got to be a minimum of, of three years, I think maybe three and a half in the UK now. Um, and the supervisor has a question. They don't know if it has an answer. Yeah. And some people um, are going to not enjoy getting stuck Yeah. for right. a year. Yeah. You have to be okay with that. Yeah, you have to be willing to, you know, stick with it. That was something an old uh, professor of mine said. Is he's like, well, the PhD does not measure intelligence. It measures uh, stick-to-itiveness <laughs> was the phrase that he used. It was like, you're... Your ability or tendency to stick with something and to just keep digging into it and keep practicing. Just how stubborn are you? Yeah, yeah. I was listening to um, Ken Gillette, the magician, talk about how 
uh, the only difference between him and uh, somebody who doesn't do magic is he's like, well, I'm willing to practice this card trick for, uh, you might be willing to practice the card trick for three hours. I'm willing to practice this card trick for 500 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why. Until you can't see I'm, the ace disappearing up my sleeve, I'm going to keep going. That's yeah. right. That's why I'm pen, Gillette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a similar sort of thing that um, if you want to do it, you have to be willing to, if, if you want to try research and if you want to do a PhD, you have to be willing to uh, just stick with something. Yeah. Stick with a single big problem or project for you know many years, and to dig into it as much as you as much as you can. Yeah, and that's not that's not an enjoyable activity for everyone. No, some, some people will have all of the skills, they'll have all of the training, um, they'll have the 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 capacity, however you measure that, to do three years of research and write a thesis at the end of it, um, but they just won't enjoy the process. Yeah. Um, and I've read recently um, someone saying that uh, the advice they were given, they were doing their PhD, they were really not enjoying it. And the advice they were given was to finish it out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> this research was not <laughs> going to beat them. They were going to finish it out of spite just to damn the research. <laughs> that sounds like, I hate this so much, I'm going to publish it in Nature. <laughs> It's how much I hate this project. It's just a horrible piece of work. It's never going to get a good answer, but I'm going to finish it anyway, and then I'm going to publish it in the highest profile journal I can get it into. Yeah. So, one of the to switch topics a little bit. I mean, one of the things that uh, that I've always liked about you is you're you're a pretty positive person. You have a pretty kind of happy demeanor to you. You have this ability to complain while still sounding happy about it. <laughs> it's still clear that you're, like, you're complaining, but you're clearly still having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can't enjoy a good complaint, um, you're, you're, that's a British trait, I think. We like to moan about everything. Yeah, but it's more than that, because not every... It's, well, if, it's not, imagine it's not if uniform. we lived in a country with good weather all year round. I mean, you wouldn't have a conversation to have with, with any old stranger you meet on the street. The fact is, once you've spent more than one winter in Britain, or maybe just a month of winter in Britain, you can you can moan about the weather for a good half an hour with a stranger, but and you'll not, both enjoy that. But you're not grumpy. So a, lot of, a lot of folks do it, and they're kind of grumpy about it. You do it, and you're like, isn't this fun? Um, <laughs> I, I think that goes back to being an undergraduate, actually, where you have... Um, my degree was structured four modules a term. Well, not a term, a semester. You don't think it's like so your parents terms. or something? or your, your No. I, I, well, what it was is I sat in a lot of lectures and I had some fantastic lecturers and I had some less great lecturers. Um, and what really stuck out for me is the ones that were interesting to listen to, even if you didn't like the subject, were people that liked their subject themselves. So I thought, right, I am never going to be boring. Hmm. Um, I'm going to try and always be interesting and always be interested oh, in yeah. stuff. So, okay, I'm complaining about something and I hate it. You know, my latest one is, why do people not use functions when they're writing vast scripts in MATLAB? Functions are there to repeat calculate. I was moaning about this for a good half an hour to you yesterday. Um, <laughs> but it was quite enjoyable moaning about that. You get it off your chest, yeah. release the poison, and then sit down and do the work. Here, you have this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> problem shared is a problem double, right? <laughs> um, and, and that, I think, is quite important to be able to say, you know what, I'm stuck, but um, the science isn't here to personally trouble me. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't 
I can anthropomorphize it as much as I like, but it's not a person that's doing this out of hatred and vindictiveness. Um, so at least try and be good-natured about it and, and face it with a, a happy smile, because eventually a result will come out of it. Yeah. And that can be very exciting. Hey, I made a straight line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got to be a scientist to understand why a straight line is so much, so exciting. But yeah, I mean, um, this is part of why this is part of why people like having you around. Is you know you are a good scientist, but you also have this you know positive vibe around you. Well, me, me, it's nice to know people like having you around. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, I think that's when you when I think about the people that I have most enjoyed talking to about science, they're the ones that are interested in everything. It doesn't have to be in their field. Um, and there's always something interesting, uh, even if you've never thought about that problem before. There, there's something of interest in there somewhere. So if you can try and be interested in, in everything, um, life becomes fun. So I'm not a pessimist and I'm not an optimist. I'm an enthusiast. Ooh. I try and think everything is great. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not always. But, it's not always, but you, you know. try to fit it in that box. Yeah. So I've got this box. I'm going to try to jam everything so, in here. I would admit I'm not that enthusiastic about getting up at half past four because I've got to get to an airport for a flight at 10 o'clock and the only way to do that is to get up at half four and when it's pitch black and cold and freezing. Ah, but, I love uh, airports. I got to <laughs> I would be excited about that. I'm like, I get to go to the airport. Um, I don't know why. It's something about, I, I have no idea, but it's something about the smell of the The excitement the fuel. of knowing you're going somewhere. Yeah, or? going somewhere. Uh, the airport's always filled with people, you know, having reunions or saying goodbye. That's quite nice. When you get you, know. you arrive somewhere, you get off the plane, there's always someone that's happy to see someone else, which yeah. is quite nice. And and I have had people meet me at an airport directly a couple of times. It's actually really nice when you walk out and see a familiar face. Yeah. Um, especially at the end of like a twenty four hour journey. It is nice. And I I'm I'm just old enough to kind of remember I didn't do a lot of flying um, when I was young, very, very little really, but I kind of remember when you could just walk right up to the gate, you know, before 9-11 and all that, that you, yeah. you could, you could literally meet someone as they got off of the plane and you could uh, give them your excited greeting there when they arrived. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I loved every part of, of airports. I mean, of course, the, uh, the whole uh, airport security bit, <laughs> the, the, it varies a lot depending on the airport, doesn't it? Because some airports are, uh, I think the Colorado one in Denver, they're not super, at least this is my experience, they're usually fairly positive. Yeah, whereas, I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. It's less painful than it could be. And, yeah. and I'm always the one that gets searched. You know, mm. There's something odd in your bag. That's, the last time I went through Denver, it was my front door key because my oh. front door is, is very thick. It's an old-fashioned lock, so the key is like, three or four inches long. <laughs> what the heck is this? Oh, yeah, and it was in my backpack, so it went through the <laughs> scanner, and they didn't have the slightest idea what this thing was. And it's like, have you got anything sharp in your bag or anything you shouldn't have? And I'm like, I don't think so. No. Was it the kind of big key with just two prongs on it? The kind of... Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's like half an eye sticks out the bottom. And, yeah. You know, it's a big sturdy key. Yeah, i got to admit up. to most, I think if you grew up, if you mostly lived in the States, then it looks like a fake key. Yeah, that's you know, a, if, if a kid was to draw a key, they'd probably draw that. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, that's not a real keys. Don't really look yeah. like that. Right? And it goes with the house because my house is. If you ask a kid to draw a house, they draw something symmetrical with two windows either side of the front door. Yeah. Right, that's what my house looks like. So your life is a kid's drawing, yeah. you know. And uh, so, and then the, so this guy was rooting around, and he, he suddenly out came this key. He went, "What's that?" 
my front door key. And you have to go and show it to the, the x-ray guys because they've never ever seen this. They no, need to know what it is. Um, this guy says this is a key. I don't buy it, frankly. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it doesn't bend, you know, it doesn't seem to be hollow. So. It looks like a little kid made this. This is not... <laughs> I mean, the truth of it is that if they're taking real exception one day, that we definitely don't believe you that that's a key, and we're going to take it off of you because we think you could do something with this on a plane. I don't know what. I mean, um, I wouldn't be able to get in when I got home because right. I arrived at half midnight, um, and I wouldn't be able to get into my house. So that would have not been popular. So. But you would have had a good story. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. that's the, the the airport took my key off of me. It's... Next time you tell this, you should add that bit. You should be like, and then they took it, and I just had to sleep outside my house <laughs> when I got back. Wait for everyone to wake up and let me in. Hey. <laughs> yeah, that that probably would have got... the airport security is changing all the time though. It's um, I think the place I've enjoyed least going through was probably New York. Yeah. 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 Grumpy and then it was oh, yeah. horrible. I got yelled at in Boston. I mean, everybody got. That everybody around me got yelled at in Boston. That wasn't that wasn't a unique experience to me. I wasn't singled out specifically. <laughs> getting we yelled don't at. like the look at you. We're going to no, shout at you. It was just everybody was getting yelled at in Boston. So it was a very high stress place, and I imagine yeah. it's similar to it's similar. New- I can't yeah. which New York airport was it? I can't remember now because it's a couple, wasn't it? Yeah, LaGuardia. It was that one. It was LaGuardia. Was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, I think it's a sign you probably travel too much when you have a favorite airport. And mine is Big Island in Hawaii. Yeah. It's lovely. There's big bed, there's flowers everywhere. Yeah. It's nice and warm. There's huge big benches for you to sit on that actually are very comfortable. So yeah. uh, unfortunately there's not very many international connections that go through there. In fact I think there's none. Yeah. Uh, so it's not somewhere you get to go very often. Yeah. I nearly left my laptop at security there, which is outside. <laughs> security is outside. <laughs> it's outside. Yeah. Oh. Or it was then. That's where so that was, when were you in Hawaii? That was like uh, an ocean science Yeah, that was an ocean science meeting. That was um, maybe 2008. It was a couple of meetings ago now because it's been there a couple of, no, it wasn't 2008. So I, I can remember, right. So the year that I started my PhD was 2000, October 2001, September 2001. And I discovered what conferences were when it got after Christmas and everyone in the group went so Dave we'll see you in a month and I went what and they were all off to Hawaii yeah for ocean sciences um, and I was very jealous because I didn't know what a conference was and I basically because I hadn't unstopped my ears and listened to anyone at that point um, so it wasn't 2002 2004 it was in Portland and had banners up that said um, see you in paradise so I went back very excited and said the next one's in Hawaii and no one believed me and it was so it must have been 2006 um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was a, it's a great excuse to go somewhere very nice and see all sorts of different things like volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, didn't actually see any red lava, but we saw the steam from where it went into the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's one reason why there's always clouds over Hawaii, is that on Big Island, you know, the water is boiling. It's yeah. Huge plume going up in the air. Um, one of the things I was talking with my, my office mate about was, um, I made some comment like, well, I don't know... I don't know what exactly you know you learn during a PhD, but if you do do a PhD in the sciences, you learn how to go to conferences. If nothing else, you know you learn that skill set. Like you either get comfortable <laughs> with traveling to places you've never been where you don't speak the language, or you give up. I think. Um, well, I, I learned a trick to um, when somewhere that the, the local language is not English, um, and being British, my grasp of other languages is awful. Um, we speak loudly and slowly. 
I mean, once again, that's good. Um, I learned to wear nice a... <laughs> it was dreadful. Um, I learned to wear a t-shirt with something in English written on it. I spent an entire day where people would just walk up to me and start talking in English, and I couldn't work out how they knew to do that. And then I looked down at the end of the day and realised that I had something written on my t-shirt. So Very that's what I do now. Um, and it works beautifully. It kind of broadcasts the message. Signaling. Yeah, yeah here's an just... ignorant traveller. <laughs> you could just get those words. <laughs> ignorant traveller. <laughs> that would do it. Yeah, that, that would, would work, trick. Yeah. yeah. Please speak in English. <laughs> um, but it, it's yeah. a great way to get exposed to different things, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've been at meetings where there's half a dozen people around the table from Spain, Italy, France, China, and, and they're all talking in English to each yeah. other because that's their common language. And so I'm lucky I don't have to worry about it. Do, do, you, uh, do you like conferences or should we just, you know, what do you think of them? Should we, or should we be replacing them with just uh, Skype calls and oh, eventually God, no. virtual reality? Oh, no, that like, would be horrible. Say, say more about that. What would be horrible um, about that? <laughs> I mean, there's the carbon aspect of it. It would be much lower in terms of carbon emissions, obviously. It would, but I think there's two reasons for it. One is that talking face-to-face, um, where you've got someone's complete concentration um, is very important. And um, there's a, a social side to a conference where you're catching up with people, you're finding out what they've been working on, um, or where they are in some cases. I mean, the, in, the, in the last three years, people went, oh, you're at Bass now, a lot, because I've moved and you, know, you don't necessarily know who to tell. Um, and that's quite important. That took me a long time to get used to. I, it was, it's very intimidating. You go to your first conference, it turns out there's 4,000 oceanographers in a building and you don't know any of them. Oh my God. I didn't know there were this many people in the world. Um, <laughs> and then after you've been to a couple, you realise it's the same two dozen people that turn up every time. <laughs> um, it's a community. It's, yeah. a, it's a community, yeah. So it, at that point, it starts to become more enjoyable. I think once I learned to relax and enjoy myself, and I learned a very good way um, to, to, to make sure people remember you. Um, know who they are, that's always helpful when you walk up to introduce yourself. Tell them you like a paper of theirs and talk about the paper. They will yeah. remember you forever. Yes. Um, Nobody noticed me. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. It's always like, I've had people do it to me now. It's very flattering yeah. when someone says, I like your paper. Yes, we like to be seen. We like to be yeah. noticed, and we like to be. That's just a human thing. That's not just a you know. Obviously, that's not just a scientist thing. That's like a. We like when somebody goes. It's, I see what you're doing. You did something interesting. Yeah. That was fun. Or you know, I enjoyed that or something like that. So, so that was my trick. Um, yeah. Was to or still is to make sure that I know I I have read something of theirs and I can talk about yeah. it. Make I'm sure also, it's genuine, though. You don't want to just... Oh, well, like, I have you know. embarrassed myself by going. <laughs> oh, I read a paper by you. Oh, hang on, no. <laughs> Was it you or was it that yeah. other William? Really? Uh, oh god! Really? Which one? Which one did you read? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it can 20, be. the twenty eleven one. Which one? I had four in twenty eleven. Which one? Is, I, I don't know. Nobody. No. By the way, nobody the, would do that. The, the one on the Southern Ocean. Three of them were on the Southern Ocean. Um, nobody. Yeah, would. I, I have embarrassed myself that way. Um, the, the the other person was very gracious, and I had generally read a paper very recently by them. I just couldn't remember the title. On. Yeah, yeah. So I think. That's one of the, the things that we're having to grapple with as a community right now, right? And you don't have to have an answer. I'm not expecting 
you know, any one person to have an answer. I'm but, certainly going to have an you know, opinion. That, well, that's, good. that's the joy of being a scientist. We've got opinions on everything. Everybody's got opinions <laughs> on everything. Doesn't mean we're right. Now they just tweet them out constantly. But, but we've got say, letters after our name that say we're entitled to Oh, God, opinion. no, this is not. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 this is not. This is, don't go this, down this rabbit hole. This is the I'm sick of experts. This is how people get to I'm sick of experts. <laughs> Just because I've got an opinion doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, yeah, but no, it's one of the things we have to grapple with a bit is that there's an obvious value in having in-person meetings because as of yet, there's no substitute for face-to-face interaction, face-to-face communication. Uh, Skype is great, but it doesn't quite get you there. Um, you know, email is fine, but again, it's pretty removed from an actual human yeah. interaction. And that's an important part of the creative process and of the scientific process is having this real-time back-and-forth conversation with someone where you can see their faces and you can see their hands moving and you can go wander off with them and get a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, if you get tired of, at a conference, you do the thing where you start talking to somebody and then if it feels like you're ready to have a conversation, you wander off and go get a coffee and have a conversation. Yeah. Whereas Skype or doing something online, it's a bit more like you sit down and you have decided, you know, we're going to now sit in this online forum and at some point this will be over as opposed For to an like, hour or an hour and a half, something like that. Yeah, you start watching the clock, the clock is ticking yeah. on your, like, we've been talking for an hour. And there's always um, other distractions. So I'm, I'm sure that being able to attend meetings virtually will become more common. Um, so uh, the, the next one, I think we're both going to AGU and Notion Sciences, there they usually put talks up, they do the videos yeah, and put them up so yeah. you can watch them. Um, but I don't think it should become the norm because, mm. yeah, you could Skype everyone, but the people that you regularly Skype are probably, you're, you're already collaborating with yeah. them. Um, that, that means there's a whole other group of people whose work is of interest to you, but you're not actively working with it at the moment. Uh, so, you know, why why would you schedule a Skype call with them? Yeah, with um, someone you don't know necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or you're not actively working with. Yeah. And so sometimes work crops up because you bump into each other at a conference, one or other you saw the other talking, and you have a conversation before you know it, you've realised you can do something interesting together. Um, and there's also about a case of attention. I've, I've Skyped into smaller meetings um, and listened to talks. And you're sat there, you're at your laptop or your computer, and in the background you're always looking at your email, or you're always doing something else. So your focus is never 100% on the meeting that you're... What do you mean mine is? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? And at the same time, I've been talking to someone on Skype, and I've heard the tip tap 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 on the laptop. So I know, you're, I know you're not listening to me. I know you're writing an email. <laughs> um, and having that focused attention for a week, or maybe not or three days for shorter meetings. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple hours. Yeah. And, helpful. and the, the, where I was saying about swapping the two slides around and talk earlier, that meeting was in Jerusalem, which is a beautiful, fascinating city. It was with a group of people who I um, had not met before. So I got to meet all of them. In fact, I got to meet a co-author It was uh, <laughs> that I had met before. It was an, I had reason to look at this big review paper that we'd, we'd written, yeah. actually led by Mike Meredith from Bath. Um, and I looked at the list of, oh, I met that person yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you necessarily. I think you brought up a lot of good points, but I guess probably 
one conceivable pushback is like, yeah, but that's a lot of carbon. That's a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, people flying it, it, it from is. all over the place. Yeah. So we're going to have to think really hard about how to strike that balance. In fact, at one of the ocean sciences meetings, one of the, the keynote speakers, um, he put up a, li- a, a chart of, it was uh, carbon use per capita for a whole list of countries. In the yeah, world, yeah. US, China, UK, Europe, all at the top. Um, and then down at the bottom, and in, and in flying to the meeting, and all she had done is flown from one side of the states to the other. Mm. Um, she had used more carbon than um, someone used an entire year in some of those countries. Yeah, um, but I don't know if that's a totally. It, it's an interesting comparison. I don't know if it's maybe a totally fair comparison. Useful, yeah. But, and um, uh, it. So I think it it will get more common, and I think it will become more supported by institutions because it yeah. saves them money and. Hopefully they'll get proper media suites set up so that you're not doing it on a tiny little laptop screen. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, here there's a, there's a bunch of oceanographers at Bass. Not all of them might be able to get out to ocean science. It would be nice if there was a room somewhere they could sit together and have kind of that mini conference experience. Of, yeah. Um, but then there's concurrent sessions, and not all of them want to watch the same session and blah blah blah. So, yeah. um, I'd like to see it supported but not enforced. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. Make it a, a viable. Make remote participation. Uh, viable and more um, more uh, immersive kind of experience somehow uh, to where it becomes a good option. Yeah, like you said, it can save money, it can save time. You know, people that may have families, uh, they might need to think about their travel kind of carefully because they don't want to be away from their family for weeks at a time necessarily, yeah. you know, a week or three weeks, however. Um, um, some meetings, you know, say the social sciences, well, it's a five-day meeting. Although these days they say it starts on a Sunday. Um, so to get to that, you've got to fly out the Friday or Saturday before. Because if you tried to arrive dead on the start of the meeting, you'd be horribly jet-lagged and useless for 24 hours. Um, and then flying home, it's you either leave on the Friday evening, which is, I hate, the, there was actually um, on the ATU community site, there was a, a discussion about this just last week of how quiet Friday evening afternoons at conferences are because everyone's leaving early. And yeah. I hate it, it's horrible. But if they just, well, said, okay, we just won't have a Friday afternoon, then Friday mornings would get really quiet. <laughs> they can't win. Um, you can't do it. The tail of the meeting is always going to be... Yeah, always, people, yeah. yeah. No matter how long the meeting is, it can be two days long or one day long, and there's always that last So then you come home, you leave on the Friday, if, or Friday evening, or in my case, I'm on a Saturday morning. And that means, because of the time differences, I don't get home until Sunday morning. Um, so that five-day meeting is actually more like eight days away. And I don't have kids, so I haven't got that concern. Um, yeah, but you still have a partner who, you know, you don't necessarily want to go like, see ya, bye. Yeah, I'll <laughs> see you in a month. Yeah. <laughs> I'm off travelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's quite an important side of it as well, is to have that supportive family life. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's an absolute privilege to be able to travel to these places and it's a, to be able to... Know, go to conferences and so I, I want I wanted to get that in the conversation as well because I feel really fortunate about that that aspect of it but um, but yeah I don't I haven't internally solved that issue of like yeah but that's a lot of carbon and so you, I've never been totally some people make do you have to you have to crack an egg to a few eggs to make an omelet you know saying like yeah. I've never found well let me explain what that what that is just for the, the conversation. The idea that, oh, if you're working in you know, atmospheric, oceanic, 
climate and science that yes travel will be part of what you're doing but because you uh, are doing things that are hopefully going to help in the long run in terms of you know climate science that that, that balances out in some ways and I'm not saying that uh, I've never found that totally satisfactory I, I hear where that argument is coming from and uh, it does make a certain amount of sense but it doesn't feel like it should be the end of the conversation, does it? It feels no. like it, it can be part of the conversation, but not the, not the um, end of it. I know some places are starting to think about offsetting the carbon when you travel, um, which obviously increases the cost of going, so it probably means fewer people they can actually be attending from any given institute. Um, and it's, it feels like that's probably a good idea, but then you're on limited funds. Um, if for example, you're applying for a grant and you ask for money to go to a conference. There, there might be on a grant, there'll be a, probably a PDRI, a postdoc, employed to actually do the work, and then there's going to be a PI, at least one other co-I, and you might all want to go to a conference on those funds. So you're looking at somewhere in the region of £2,000 as a minimum for an international conference. If you then got to offset your carbon, you've got to add for those three or four grant participants, you've then got to add three or four times that amount, however much it turns out to be, onto that grant, or you've got to suck, the institute's got to suck it up or you've got to get the funding somewhere else. Um, and the way finding money for science at the moment is, which is tough, um, I don't think it would be a popular option at the moment if suddenly the UK government went, you've all got to be carbon neutral on your travels. Mm. We all go, where's the money going to come from? Which is what has happened with them going, all of your papers have got to be open access. <laughs> Okay, give us more money. Right, please. so you've, we've just gone from $500 to publish somewhere to 3000 so Where's that money coming from? It could be a few thousand for AGR yeah. in some places. Yeah, I've, I've seen them go as high as $4,500 yeah. um, and £3,500. I don't know if that's an, that's an idea that I don't think many people are aware of that uh, you have to pay to publish. Have you ever seen occasionally you get a, a politician in the US who has picked up the bizarre notion that uh, scientists, you guys must get paid for every report you turn in. They're like, no, we, we have salaries, but actually we have to, not usually from our own pockets, but we have to pay. There has to be a pot of money available. No, yeah. we pay to publish. We don't get paid per paper. That, that would be you know. great. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it feels like the wrong incentive. If, if, if it's done as a, a bonus on top of your regular salary, um, no, I'm being facetious uh, because... <laughs> different fields have different rates of publication. So, yeah. um, in in some cases, you might be able to write or be on a dozen papers a year. Depending, you know, if you're a senior professor, that would be very easy to win a dozen papers a year. Um, if you're the head of a lab or something like that, and as opposed to something like mathematics, where if you look at the size of research groups, they're much much smaller, um, and it, it can take much longer to work your way through some complicated proof. So you might only be publishing one paper a year, but that doesn't mean that it's any less valuable than the dozen that got published by someone else. Um, so yeah, I, I think it would be a bad idea to reward us in that way. I read uh, China's doing this. China's trying that. They're paying people oh, they? per publication. Yeah, um, and there are. I could be misremembering something here, so don't quote me on it. But uh, that I remember seeing that. You know, different journals give you get get you different bonuses, and uh, okay. so. The, but the concern is then that that people are trying to publish for specific financial incentives as opposed yeah. to publishing because they have 
made a scientific discovery and that they want to share with everyone. Uh, I mean, that's, that's our job. It is our job to put these papers out. Uh, but Maybe we should get continued you know, royalties based on the number of uh, citations we get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those papers that get cited 600 times, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, the trouble is, though, that any way you try to reward, any system you set up where you try to reward people or then those will become the the incentives that people will work towards. Yeah, you know, humans you naturally like, game systems. We, yeah, we work out how to get the most out of it. And, yeah, that's and a good that's way. Why to, rules are forever changing. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, if you say, yeah, if you put the emphasis on um, citations, then people will start writing in a particular way to try to maximize yeah. citations. And they'll start like, cooperating with each other to make sure papers get cited and things like that as well. Um, there are instances where I've I've heard of that of, of um, I can't quite remember how it was phrased. It wasn't dishonesty, but it was groups that were clearly working together to cite each other's papers to mm. ensure that they got higher levels of citation. And so you get circles where it just it's yeah. there's no out no breakouts in the end. That, that could be legitimate though, because be, you know yeah. all of that work could is probably building on yeah. all of those pieces of work are probably building on each other and making something bigger out of it and that's that's why it's so hard to spot and de-incentivize that side because actually a lot of that's legitimate if you look at yeah. <laughs> if you if you went and picked picked up a couple of the papers that I've written recently you'd find that they're citing similar work because you end up you have your favorite citation for this or whatever and you know, the, and certain then what happens is certain papers get cited for certain bits of information that are in them that quite often weren't the main point of the paper um and so everyone starts using that paper for that because it becomes well known um and uh hopefully that just becomes very good <laughs> but one of the most highly cited papers i've ever heard of was being cited because it was wrong that's okay right i mean that's 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 legit science as well yeah, yeah. you know you Put an idea out there. You yeah. was it wrong in that um, it was an idea that could later be um, um, I, disproved, or was I can't it remember the wrong because the some detail, bad mistakes. But fatally was made. flawed was was a, a phrase mm. I heard directly uh, at it, and I can't okay. even remember which paper it was. Well, so I wouldn't want to say we're being too hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, we wouldn't want to. Like <laughs> this particular paper was no, no. Um, I mean, it happened. You. you ideas for it it can be difficult as a student starting out you go back you find an older paper that's been highly cited and it, it's really interesting um and then you find out that that was 15 20 30 40 years old and in the interim since the discussions moved on and people now think in a different way um it's not necessarily that that older paper was wrong it might have just been no one else had thought about that before and so it's evolved and Sometimes they just get forgotten. I mean, look at Stommel's um, bicyclability of the Penhalo circulation paper. It didn't get anything for years and years, and now it's got like seven hundred citations. So this was Henry Henry Stommel. Was in the sixties, was it? Does that sound right? Three, I think. Yeah, it was like a really foundational paper with some some basic theory in it that mm -hmm. turned out to be very useful and very helpful. But you're saying that when it was first published, nobody really paid attention to it. Yeah, and it was. Uh, so he was underground. He was very, you know. At least that paper was. That yeah, paper you know, was. Um, and uh, it, it took a number of years, and then it got the idea got traction, and now it's very well known. People are still working on it. Um, 
expanding the discussion in many ways. Uh, and it's a very interesting paper to read. Yeah, I don't even know what time it is. Do you know what time um, it is? 10 past 11. 10 past 11. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not too bad. Um, not run out of words yet? No, definitely not. I've been saving them up all week. <laughs> Have you? No, I, I <laughs> Barely talking. I knew you'd be a good guest for this because you, uh, you don't have any problem talking. It's not, you know, you can imagine with some guests it might be difficult to get them to start talking this, this freely and this, you know, comfortably. Uh, are you saying I've got verbal diarrhea? No. <laughs> no, no. I'm saying that you don't, you don't have to work hard to pull words out of you. Uh, yeah, I, I believe you once described me as a man of strong opinions when I was ranting about some piece of art that I thought was a load of rubbish. Um, um, yeah, I guess that, that's part of, I think that's part of the training of being a scientist is you get to the point where you stop worrying about being perfectly right all the time um, and just having a discussion where you have to just open your mouth and start talking sometimes. But you're always trying to get towards something that's that's correct and that's you know hopefully you're working your way towards something that um where you have whittled away all of the the things that don't work uh i mean that's that's the scientific process right you start with an idea and you test different aspects of it and you get rid of the bits that don't work yeah and was it thomas edison thomas edison i think yeah i think his name's thomas uh, i think his quote was um i have not failed i have found ten thousand ways that do not work yeah yeah i think i'm probably getting out there that's right. <laughs> or something like, uh, you know, you, you do an experiment. Oh, I can't remember the, the quote. I'm going to just abandon that thread because I can't remember what the quote is instead of trying to do it. Um, good. Yeah, so we talked about, you know, your history and kind of where you grew up and how mm-hmm. you grew up. And, you know, we talked about your kind of path, pathway into science and to becoming a scientist. Um, yeah, so what... Um, what kind of, what do you want to do next? Like, what objectives do you have for the future? Where do you kind of, Ooh. and that's, that's kind of, a, it doesn't have to be a huge question. You know, it could be as simple as um, you want to keep doing what you're doing, that you found a good equilibrium for yourself that you want to um, keep, keep tugging along. And we don't have to get technical, but. I guess, I, I, before I came to Bass, I'd say I, I reached a decision point. So I said earlier, I love working at Oxford. I love the group. Um, a great bunch of students and postdocs and lecturers. Wonderful, vibrant place to work um, if anyone gets a chance. Um, and I was there for seven years, and it kind of reached the point of I had, I felt val- very valued, um, and I, I had a role in that um, I'd been there, I was the only one remaining from when the group moved there. Um, and I had done a lot of modelling, so it meant that when we had new students starting, when new postdocs had done modelling, there was always someone there that could get them started. Um, and that was, was quite valuable in a long-term group to have some sort of continuity beyond the, the person at the top, because they can't afford to spend hours every week talking to one person or something like that. They're, they're time, your time gets more constrained as you work your way up through the, the trophic levels of academia. Um, and so I kind of reached a decision point of I could either stay there um, and do that, or I could find something permanent somewhere else, and that would allow me um, to pursue the science that I wanted to pursue myself. And the, the reason for that is, as a postdoc, three-year contract after three-year contract, 
um, I was very lucky. I got seven years funding to work on the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic Circle Plan of Paris. So it gave me a good long time to really dig into it and try and get down to the, the fundamental understanding of what was going on. Um, so I wasn't continuously changing subject. But at the end of it, I spent two years trying to secure funding to let me carry on with that. It wasn't working out. So there was still funding there as part of the OSNAP project, but that OSNAP is something that stands for. It's about the, the um, subpolar ocean in the Atlantic. Overturning the polar... North Atlantic, something polar, maybe. I don't know. Program. But, um, program. Uh, and um, so my decision point was I could either try and find something permanent somewhere, which was part of, turned out to be part of that two years of trying to secure funding, really. Um, or I could go, well, you know what, I'm going to have to change the uh, project every so often, so I can stay here and accept that that's going to happen. I can continue to fill, up, to fill a role that I think is useful and is also enjoyable. Um, sometimes I'd have days where I'd go home and my wife would ask me, well, what did you do today? Well, well I talked to this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. Like, did you do any work? Yeah, I talked to all those people. Yeah, that was my job today. did a lot of talking. It was yeah. great. I <laughs> really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and so my decision was, I want to be able to pursue science I want to pursue. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in uh, what did the ocean look like millions of years ago? So people talk a lot about how it's going to change in the future and, and what, what circulation, the dynamics might look like in terms of climate change. Um, but because the world in the past has been so different, you've got an opportunity there. It's, it's interesting, which I think is the most important thing about any science. It's got to be interesting to the yeah. people doing it. So yeah. that's part of your motivation. And you're talking about tens to hundreds of millions of years ago. A long time ago. When yeah. the continents have, you know, were all when, completely different. For example, go back somewhere like 35 to 50 million years ago and Australia was basically connected to Antarctica. Yeah. The whole world was warmer um, by an amount that we don't know precisely, but it was warmer as in there was green plant life on Antarctica and probably little, if any, perennial uh, land ice. And any sea ice that there was would have been very thin, very short-lived, um, but it depends on the particular estimates. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I'm interested in pursuing what that circulation might have looked like because that has a chance to teach us about dynamics that we might not otherwise think about. It could improve our understanding of what's going to happen in the future and what's happening now. Um, and if you have that sort of goal, to be able to focus on it, you need time and you need to not be distracted by changing project every two or three years. Um, so that's what I decided to do. Um, and Bass gave me a job. <laughs> where I'm here indefinitely um, and so that's really my goal is to try and pursue that um, which is a combination of my own time um, trying to come up with intelligent sounding grants that can get funded on that which at the moment I have not been successful um, students as well um, trying to get PhD students onto it so I had a student finish very recently um, he passed his viva just he was looking at landslides in the past, enormous landslides. I mean, there's there hundreds of hundreds of millions of cubic kilometers of mud and sand, hmm. um, causing water in the ocean of densities that are completely off the charts for the modern ocean. As in, um, well, you know, to 
can't think of a way to put it neatly, but um, massively more dense than anything we'd ever expect to find in the modern ocean or in, in water, really. Um, and that was fascinating because it was a problem I hadn't considered. That was a, a geologist, Peter Torling at, at Southampton, talking to a colleague of mine at Oxford and saying, I'm interested in this, and they knew I would be, and before you know it, we've got a student who's done a very diverse PhD involving geological observations and also some very good modelling of the Arctic. Mm. So it was, um, it's that sort of thing, finding interesting problems that I'm interested in doing, uh, but in the past, so things that other people aren't thinking about. Um, quite often the dynamical question hidden away that no one's, no one even knows to ask, let alone how to answer them. Hopefully I'll find a few more, and that's what I want to do. And that's why I'm glad I'm here for an indefinite amount of time, because it gives me the, yeah. the grace, really. You don't have the, the clock ticking over your head at the moment, you know, you don't have that particular time pressure yeah. hanging over you. Yeah, yeah so that uh, gives you some, some freedom, and it gives you a, a little bit of a, a respite from constant, from chasing funding constantly. I mean, you, you do, you know, apply for stuff, and that's kind of... Yeah. Keep, it is part of the job, but it's not quite as um, do or die sort of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a situation. Yeah, and, and in practice, if you were to um, try and put a grant in for, for example, every note standard round, six months apart, January and July, and you try to do that twice a year, you'd be spending, I would guess, something like three or four months a year just writing those grants and doing those science in the meantime. So. Until you get to the point where you've got two basically ready to keep resubmitting, your, your, the amount of time you're putting into them is might be slightly disproportionate to the likelihood of it being funded at the moment. Um, and I'd rather be doing science, <laughs> which I'm probably not meant to say. I won't say that to the people that want me to go and get funding. <laughs> well, they're, they're not going to be listening anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's fingers crossed. I don't think. And uh, if you are, hello. <laughs> no, <laughs> Please don't fire me. <laughs> uh, we haven't tried this podcast thing before. We don't know. You yeah, know, you maybe, never know. Maybe we'll be. We the, might have a hit on our hands. We might have <laughs> a hit, or something horrible might happen to us for some bizarre reason. Not really. I'm sure. It'll be fine. Sure it's fine. It'll be fine. That's a good way to end, right? <laughs> Are you happy? Do you want to? Is there anything else you want to talk about? Any, uh, um. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I mean, I'm sure I could, I could keep going. Oh, I know. Uh, but we can do it again. Um, this doesn't have to be the only time. And this is even kind of an initial test, right? We're trying out mm -hmm. the microphones and we're trying out the setup and um, we got bounced around a little bit. Well, good. Thanks. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Dave, good, good to have you around. And uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks, Gregory. I gotta figure out a good way to end these things. <laughs> it's cheesy, but they they often it's it's cheesy but effective. They often have a little you know tag at the end or some, yeah. some, some something you say, you know some like phrase. There, and, there must um, be a song that has something about the ocean or waves in it that you can just play a little snippet. Something like that, yeah. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna edit these. So all the awkwardness is gonna be in there a hundred percent. It's just chock full of that awkwardness. That's, Yay. <laughs> that's a that's a genuine thing. That's what real conversations sound like. Yeah, that's yeah. that slightly uncomfortable pause where you're not quite sure if the person heard the question you asked or if they're just trying to to ignore it. Yeah. Or, yeah, that's right. Or was it really that difficult? <laughs>
Cheers. Well, thanks, Dave. Talk to you later. Okay, okay. Bye. <laughs> just like, no, you don't have to go. Okay. I'll, I'll stop. Okay. There you have it. If you made it all the way to the end of this, I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, I thought that we had a nice conversation. I'm sure I'll have Dave back another time so that maybe we can talk about the uh, science that he does a bit more um, and maybe we can get into some of his... Um, I mean, he has, a, he has a lot of thoughts. He doesn't mind talking, and he'll tell you that himself, uh, as he mentioned. I think he mentioned it in the show, even. Uh, so, yeah, that wraps up this test episode, and uh, there will be uh, more in the future, and I'll also have a better audio set up in the future. Um, I'll have two microphones, not just one, so that we'll be able to capture two individuals talking at the same time uh, with a bit more uh, fidelity and a bit more volume, because I know this was a bit quiet, so if you did listen to this whole thing, thanks for struggling through that. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this project. I'm happy to see, uh, I'm excited to see where it goes, and I'm happy that I, that I started it. Um, you know, it might not go anywhere, and that's fine. It's totally fine, but um, I guess all you can do is try stuff see how it goes, uh, try to make something, try to create something, try to put something out there. Um, yeah, and uh, what else can you do, right? How else are we going to spend our time? Uh, yeah, okay, so this is, uh, that's it, and I'll see you uh, next time. Well, I won't see you, obviously. Uh, okay, I'm going to stop talking.